Abraham was from the southern Mesopotamian city of Ur. In 1922, archaeologists discovered the ruins of Ur and found a lot of gold, chariots, and wealthy tombs. In fact, this city was so well developed and urbanized, they were able to excavate 900 meters by 1200 meters, making this one of the largest discoveries from this time period. Its proximity to the Persian Gulf made it accessible for trade and commerce, and an estimated 24,000 people lived here. It was also the, the center for the worship of the pagan moon god, Nana. For Abraham to get up and to leave this cultural epicenter and move to a place like Canaan would have been like moving from the metropolis of Phoenix to a place like Tucson. Ugh. Actually, I'm just kidding. I don't really know why Phoenix people look down on the dirty tea, but really it is kind of like going from Manhattan to Papua New Guinea. And yes, it really would have been that drastic of a culture shock. And it shows the amount of faith that Abraham had. So there you go, a little bit about her. And that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. Father, we love you so much, and as we again dig into Genesis this, this afternoon or this evening, we just pray that, again, that you'd impress upon us the truth of your promises, the reality of your care for us, your love for us, the fact that your mercies are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. Father, we, we ask that as we dig through the scripture tonight that you would send us your Holy Spirit in power, that you'd give us wisdom and insight. And also that you'd be bring us comfort, reminding us again and anew that we are loved and forgiven by an amazing God. And we pray that tonight in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So we're picking up in chapter 12, verse 10 today of Genesis. We're kind of making our way through. And I guess the theme of tonight would be God's promises are really true, okay? And it's not a catchy theme. It's just going to be the theme for tonight. Another way that um, the Truth Project guy said it is, do you really believe that what you really believe is really real? I think it's a great question as we look at life, as we look at God's promises, as we look at the reality of how we treat God's promises, his law, his, all those different things. I, I think we sometimes take them seriously when convenient, uh, but when push comes to shove, sometimes we abandon them and we try to take things um, under our own control. And that's what you'll see in the story of Abraham as it continues a little bit today. And so we begin in verse 10 and it says, now there was a famine in the land, the land of Canaan where Abraham left Ur that Mike so wonderfully described. In fact, there's a lot of archeological evidence, not only in Ur, but, but also in Sodom and Gomorrah, if you can believe that. They found evidence of that. And all the way through the Mesopotamian region, they found all sorts of evidence that what scripture has spoken is actually real and true. I mean, that there was, probably a guy named Abraham and all these different events occurred in real cities and, and there, therefore and so such. And that doesn't even make any sense. But there is what I said. And so there was a famine in the land, this land of Canaan, this land of promise that God said, go to this land. I want you to stay in this land. This is the land I'm going to give you. But there was a famine in the land. And so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. So God's promise to Abraham is I'm going to give you this land and I'm going to take care of you. And I'm going to provide for you so much so that you'll see descendants more than the sands of heaven. I'm going to bless you with a nation, probably a nation of means. I'm going to bless you with, with, with life and with prosperity and with blessing. Trust me. And yet a famine comes, and it's a severe famine. They keep referring to it over and over. And, and so you would imagine that Things were difficult and things got hard and, and they were wondering, much like later in scripture when they have other famines, they were wondering where they're going to get their next bite to eat. 
Egypt was strategically located near the Nile, and so their agriculture was based on the, the Nile River and not based on rainfall as much, and so they were able to produce even during great famines in the region. And so time after time, when it talks about famines in Scripture, people would go to Egypt to find sustenance, to find the ability to keep on keeping on, to find the ability to live. God's promise is, I'll take care of you. And when things get hard, sometimes we like to take matters into our own hands. And yet, whenever we take matters into our own hands, what's interesting, it, it kind of makes us susceptible to things like temptation and sin and, and compromise. I, I'll give you some examples of, of compromise that, that maybe bear this out a little bit. I had a buddy one time, he was working for a, a finance firm. He had worked his way up very quickly. He was a young kid in his 20s, making 300 something thousand dollars a year. We were playing golf one day, and he just said, Mike, he goes, I don't know if I can keep doing this. What they're asking me to do is, I think, illegal. It's wrong. And I mean, they pay me a lot of money to keep doing it, but I, I just don't think I can keep doing it. He said, I, I've rationalized it for a long time now. They're paying me a good wage. I mean, they're paying me a lot of money. I mean, it's just a little sin, right? It's not a big sin. But he goes, more and more, I'm just coming to grips that I, I just don't think I can move forward with this. And I'm not sure if I burn my bridge here that... I'll have a lot of openings, you know, coming out the other side. And what I said to him is that God always makes it possible to be faithful. And so a few months later, he quit the job and just left everything, walked away, and God provided two months later a job that didn't pay quite as much, but it was a job that he could have integrity with, and he was able then to get married and move forward, and he didn't have that guilt hanging over him. God always makes it possible to be faithful. Another lady in my first church, we were talking about tithing, and she says, you just don't understand. We're not tithing at all, and, and we're barely making it. And I said, God always makes it possible to be faithful. And she took that, and for whatever reason, she decided, I'm going to trust God. And so she trusted God that next year, and she tithed 10%. And she saw one miracle after another miracle after another miracle of God providing you can't outgive God, and God is always true to his promises. He always provides a way for you to be faithful. It's incredible. All, all the way through Scripture, God gives us these promises, and yet in our own wisdom or pressures of the world or whatever it might be, we, we start freaking out, and we start taking matters into our own hands, and we make bad choices, and we get into difficult situations, and we compromise truths that we know are right there's a girl in my vicarage church, she was uh, engaged actually to be married to a, a non-Christian and we were talking about this and that that's not God's plan for her life. She took it seriously again and she broke off the engagement. She said, I was engaged because I was lonely and I just didn't think there'd be somebody that would come after that. And he seemed to meet all the other boxes. He was always justifying it. He met this box and this box and this box. He just didn't meet the I believe in Jesus box. But I was hoping that through our dating he'd come around but he hasn't come around. So she ended the engagement, and three months later, she met the man that she would marry. Again, God always makes it possible to be faithful. The question I think always is, will we trust him? Or will we take matters into our own hands, and will we so complicate our life? So Abraham had a, an opportunity here. God has said, I will take care of you. I'll provide for you. I'll provide a way forward. Famine was severe. He started freaking out. 
So he went to Egypt to sojourn there, and the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Seems a bit extreme, right? Unless you understand that at this time, everybody looked to the sanctity of marriage as one of the unapproachable sins. It was held in high regard. To, to commit adultery was one of the highest evils you could possibly do. So what did they do instead? They always could find a way around it. They just would kill the husband so that now she's unattached and, hey, are you dating anybody? So that's what they would do. And if they found a beautiful woman and they thought they could overpower the husband, I got a new life today. You know, that's the way it would work. So there was a very legitimate fear, a very real fear. So Abraham concocted this idea he said, well, if I tell you that you're my sister, which no, actually you really are. We're kind of sister, you know, sister, brother, and once removed, but whatever. I can say that with all honesty. If we say we're brother and sister, they'll treat me well because of you, because I'm family. And they'll want to impress me. They may even give me gifts. But I tell you what, we're just not going to stay that long in the land. It's just during this famine. And so what I'll do is I'll keep putting these suitors off until it's time to go. And then we'll just kind of hightail it. It will protect me. It will protect you. It's genius, he said to himself. Doesn't say that she disagreed with him. There was a very real legitimate possibility that he could be killed. Now, it's interesting, though, that, you know, Sarah was a little bit up there in years. I will call her experience at this point, you know. Um, but she was still incredibly beautiful, beautiful enough where people in the land would take notice. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. And so I'm sure out of love, Sarah obeyed. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. So just like Abraham said, man, they started going in. All the guys are looking. He's getting a little, oh yeah, she's my sister. Be nice to me, you know, he would say. And they were. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. Now Egypt wasn't some insignificant little town during this time. It was one of the great powers on earth. The Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men on earth. In fact, it was probably around the 12th dynasty and been around, the pyramids were probably built in the 4th dynasty, so it had been a great empire for quite some time. Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men on earth, took notice of his wife. There was no putting Pharaoh off. Do you see the complexity of the problem he just got himself into? I came up with a genius plan that will make sure that I'm safe and you're safe. Then Pharaoh got involved. When Abraham entered Egypt, and the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Oh, and for his sake, he dwelt well with Abram, just like he thought they would. And he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. In other words, Pharaoh lavished all sorts of riches and gifts upon Abram because of Sarah his sister. And he treated him well because of his sister. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. One of the, the very dis, uh, comforting things that you would assume as you're going through the scriptures is that Pharaoh and Sarai had had intimacy, hence the plagues that ensued that there was adultery that happened in the midst of this circumstance. 
Abraham waged a little gamble. The gamble didn't pay off, and now his wife had committed adultery, and basically it was his fault. Not basically, it was his fault. Not only did he not trust God would provide in Canaan, where he resided, which was the land of promise, he did not trust that God would protect him as they went into Egypt. He did not trust God to tell the truth, that God would still have his back, that somehow God would still come through. And yet the silliness of that comes through in these next verses as God does come through, as God does protect, as God does save Abram, even in the midst of this complex, horrible situation that he's gotten himself into. He could have done so in so much less grandiose ways had he just told the truth and he trusted that God would protect him. People would have somehow respected him and not killed him and he could have dwelt in the land even though he didn't trust God to begin with to be there anyway. So the Lord saw what was going on and hey, Abram and Sarai, those were to be the parents of the promise. So the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what have you done to me? He had ascertained that these plagues, probably some kind of stuff with the skin or whatever was happening, came upon them because of some great sin. Probably didn't take long for him to investigate this situation and find out. Somebody would talk, he was Pharaoh, that he was a sister, I mean that he was Abram's wife. So he called Abraham in, Abram in and said, what is it that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? What? Why? Why? All condemning. Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. He had wronged Pharaoh. He had wronged his wife. He'd gotten into a horribly sticky situation and a horrible situation all because he couldn't trust. He couldn't trust that God would take care of him, that God would protect him, that God would provide, and yet even in the midst of all that, God protects him and provides and frees him. It must have been quite an impression that Pharaoh got from the Lord, that he had reverence not only for the Lord because he didn't harm Abram in any way, He could have rectified the situation quickly. Well, he used to be your husband. (laughs) But he had a fear of God, and he also had a respect for marriage. And so he says, take your wife and go. Think about the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sinned, and they were cast out because of their sin. They had wronged God in every possible way, and they were cast out. Here again, Abram, the man of God, the line of promise, wrongs the Pharaoh in every possible way and is cast out. Most likely before the, f- the famine was quite completed and he was told to take everything and go. Interestingly enough, Pharaoh doesn't take all his stuff back. Interestingly enough, Pharaoh doesn't kill Abram for what he said and what he did. God protected him in every possible way and he fleed Egypt with a whole bunch of wealth. Think about the... Um, The plagues of Egypt and the Israelites fleeing Egypt again with what? A whole bunch of wealth, ill-gotten gain, if you will, in both cases. She is my sister so that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. See, whenever we take matters into our own hands, it never works out quite the way we think it should or at least the way God would have it. 
We find ourselves tempted over and over again to compromise things that we shouldn't be compromising, to push and to do things that probably we shouldn't be doing, all in order to force a situation to happen because we feel out of control and want to make something happen. Or we could just trust God that he will always make it possible to, to be faithful. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that they had and lot with them into the Negev. They had a, a lot of stuff at this point. Pharaoh had loaded them down with wealth. So it says, now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So what does he do upon getting this rebuke? And also, I want you to hear this. He stood before Pharaoh and didn't give a defense. Probably wise, he's Pharaoh. But he didn't say he was right in any possible way. He was completely silent, owning the conviction of his guilt, owning that he had done wrong. His wife had already been defiled. He had experienced the full weight of his sin. And now he's cast out. And you imagine that walk home must have been brutal. But he goes to the last place that he had connected with God in a close way, the last place that he had set up an altar to God. And he again sacrificed unto the Lord. And you have to imagine in repentance, and in a prayer that would say, God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. Don't reject me because of this. Don't, don't, don't cast me aside because I've rebelled against you. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And then further complication from taking matters into our own hands and further complication of sin. It says, And Lot, who was with Abram and had flocks and herds and tents so that the land could not support the both of them, were dwelling together. Again, Pharaoh had loaded them down, and Lot had benefited as well. And it was still famine time. And if it's, it's interesting, as you go down a little further, it sees that the Canaanites and Perizzites were there. The Perizzites had come in during this interim. They were new to the land of Canaan. And so now there was two nations in there, as well as Abraham and Lot and all their stuff. And it was still probably at the end of the famine conditions. So there was not enough land there to support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Again, their family should be unity in family. Fighting over stuff is so stupid. You're prioritizing the things and not the people. And whenever you, you prioritize things over people, you get it out of order and you destroy relationships. You should use things and love people, not love things and use people. But again, they had a lot of stuff. And there wasn't enough land. Something would have to give. We want that. What, just because you think Abraham's in charge, you think you could get it all? And what had happened to Lot as he looked at his uncle, the man that he esteemed from the very beginning, the man he followed into this land of promise because God had promised to give it to him. What did he just watch Abram do? Lie? Get his aunt compromised? Leave Egypt in shame? All because he wouldn't trust the God who brought him into the land of Canaan. The God that he had trusted everything with before. He lost respect for his uncle just a little bit. And so there was no talking to his herdsmen and saying, just suck it up. He's in charge. There was strife. There was, I want my way and you want your way. And Abraham sensed that. And have you ever felt guilty? You ever acquiesced sometimes in the midst of that guilt? 
And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we were kinsmen. Abram sort of snapped out of it and decided to be a leader and decided to confront this situation. He loved Lot. He loved his family. He loved everybody. He, can't, he couldn't stand the thought that strife was entering into the relationship. So Abram said, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then you will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham does this incredible thing, which was, I think for a long time, I just couldn't grapple with just how selfless he was. But what did he do? He simply put relationship above things. If you remember that relationships are more important, then you don't divide your family over an inheritance. Who cares who gets what? It's about relationship. It's about loving your sister or your brother. That's got to be more important than things. We live in a materialistic world and we lose sight of that, I think, all the time. I've watched families literally destroyed, I think I shared this the other day, over a place setting. It just doesn't make any sense. But Abram addressed the situation and he says, man, God's given us this whole thing. Go wherever you're going, I'll go the other way. What was he doing at this point? He was trusting the promise that God had given him the whole land. That he couldn't give away what God had promised. That he didn't own any of it at that point anyway. (laughs) What was he giving away other than where he was going to hang out? So he trusted that God would provide just like he said he would. And he put relationship over the temporal things and he said, Lot, you go that way, I'll go this way, it's cool. And so what does Lot do? He looks around and he picks the best portion. He didn't defer back to his uncle and say, no, uncle, you choose. You're, you're closer to God or whatever. You're, you're my elder, you're my senior. He, he said, no, no, I'll take the good piece. Now I'll take that part that looks like the garden of the Lord, that looks like the land of Egypt, well-watered, well suited for all of my cattle and all that I want to do. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east and thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now it's interesting if you look at the geography of this, Lot chose to move to the very outskirts of Canaan. Sodom and Gomorrah you would think were kind of borderline border town cities along the southern part of the, the Dead Sea. And Abram went back north just to the heart of Canaan. And what drew Lot toward this area was the beautiful land. And he compromised just a little bit, for he knew that the people of Sodom were wicked. That's what it says here. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and he moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. These are people that trusted the Lord, that loved the Lord, that were righteous in his sight. In other words, they trusted him with a whole bunch of stuff in their life, right? They trusted him to move all the way to that place. They trusted him to provide, even though they had a little difficulty, a little disagreement between the two of them, right? They still trusted the Lord, loved the Lord with all their hearts. But they'd come from Ur, kind of an affluent town. 
They'd just gone and spent some time in Egypt and had materially been blessed out of their mind. He also goes to a place where he knows his cattle and his sheep will be well taken care of. What's the big deal if the town nearby is a little crazy? So it says that he settled, what does it say? Um, now the men of Sodom or settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. And so in the, in the Hebrew, as you go into it, it would be like moving to the outskirts of town. Not necessarily in town, but close enough to enjoy the benefits, right? To go to a movie now and then, to, to go to the plays, right? Or whatever it might have been in town. But not in the city. That would be, that would be wrong. That would be too much. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And God always makes it possible to be faithful. He told Lot, go wherever. And then God comes right behind that and says, you know what? You didn't give away anything. I'm still going to keep my promise. I saw your sacrifice to me. I saw the way that you dealt with Lot. You're still my boy, right? You're still the man of promise. I'm still going to bless you with children and descendants after you. I'm still going to give you this land. Look all over the place. Walk all over the place and get to know this piece of land that I'm giving to you. And so I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled at the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. This place of the oaks of Mamre would become his home for a long, long time. And there he built an altar again in thanksgiving to God, wouldn't you? You just blew it big time. You were nervous that God had rejected you. Now there's evidence of that, at least in your mind. There's now friction in your family. So you let Lot pick. You let him choose. Now he's gone. You've experienced suffering at every point because you were, I want to use a different word, because you were dumb, right? And yet God comes right behind you and says, I still love you. I've still got you. You've lost nothing. Keep trusting me. So you build an altar out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving, out of being overwhelmed at the forgiveness and love he still has for you. Again, God always makes it possible to be faithful. In the days of uh, Amraphel, uh, king of Shinar, I'm going to butcher a bunch of these names, um, Ariok, king of Elisar, uh, Shadolarmar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with, with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adama, Shemember, king of uh, Zolim, and the king of Bala, that is Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea, Twelve years they had served Shadalamar, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So it's talking about a war here. If you go by archaeological facts, it seemed like they had spent almost a century in peace in the midst of this valley. In the midst of this um, Canaanite valley, they experienced a long uh, set of peace during that time. And then, at least according to archaeology, there was a movement, a, a group of people that came through and wiped out almost everybody. What had happened during this time... It seems, and in Scripture, it continues to be backed up with the archaeology over and over and over again, is that these Western kings had decided that they were going to do a little bit of extortion 
you have to understand they were constantly, these city-states were constantly looking to try to enlarge their influence, to enlarge the amount of um, uh, resources that they had. And, and one of the things that they think in this valley, there was butamen and there was all sorts of resources. And so they were trying to get some of the resources in this land. And so they wanted a continual flow of that. And so they came to take them over and to put them uh, under, what's it called, making them subject to them so that they would pay a regular tribute. It says here, 12 years they had served Shadalamar, but in the 13th year they rebelled. It's interesting, this is the first time 13 is used all the way through scripture, but whenever it's used, it seems to be always in connection with rebellion in some way. In the 14th year, Shadalamar and the kings who were with him came and defeated Raphaim, and this other guy, and this other guy, and this other guy, and the Horites in the hill country of Sir, as far as El Ephron, on the border of the wilderness. And they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the countries of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddam with Shadalamar, king of Edom. The title came of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and, the, and Ariok, king of Elisar, four kings against five. And so they stopped paying tribute. And so these kings of the West, they came in in mass, in force, and they decided to teach them a lesson once and for all. And if the archaeological records are right, they just destroyed everybody. Those they didn't destroy fled. And for a long portion after that, they said, a century or two, you would just see the ruins, but it was largely uninhabited after this period. So they went through and they just wiped them out. These guys feeling their lives threatened and also primarily because they were the ones that stopped paying tribute and caused this whole thing to begin. They went out to fight the battle and they got crushed. So the enemy took all their possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the, their provisions and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and, in, and his possessions, and they went their way. So these kings came through. They destroyed, utterly destroyed the land, even Sodom and Gomorrah. The people had fled or they got destroyed and killed in the battle. But they made a mistake. They took Lot, right? Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living in the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and, and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. So you got to imagine one of the, the Amorites who had gotten, lot, who gotten loose ran and told probably intentionally these two allies of Abram. But then Abram, as he was telling them what had happened, heard that Lot had been captured. And he went after him. 318 guys is not a lot of guys. The forces that had come and, and, and swept through the land were probably in the hundreds of thousands, you would guess. 318 is not a lot of guys. I'm sure there was more guys with his allies. But it still would have been a pittance compared to the army that had just destroyed the land. It's interesting as you read commentators, some are like, oh, it could never happen except unless you believe scripture. How many did Gideon have as he took on armies of the Amorites much, much later. How many? 300. And so you see, he went after again doing what? Trusting that God would provide. Trusting that somehow, some way that God was incensed by the fact that they took Lot. That God would rescue him through his hand somehow, some way. 
And he went out after this great army. And what's crazy is I'm sure this great army was just sitting there kind of reveling in all that they had done, all the people they had taken, all the provisions they had done. They were just kind of partying up, whooping up. They just had an incredible battle. It was an incredible campaign. They accomplished everything they wanted to do. They went unhindered. They were victorious. This should be a battle of all battles that they proclaim everywhere. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, they were attacked by somebody. Who could it be? They had taken pains to make sure their backside couldn't be attacked. They had made sure they had, they had conquered everybody. There should be nobody attacking them at this point. Somebody was attacking in the middle of the night. So it continues, when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night. Mind you of Gideon? Should. And he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. In the midst of the middle of the night attack, they're unexpecting it. The confusion and the chaos that would have ensued. There, I'm sure there's supposition of a much mightier army than attacked them because who would dare attack them at that point? They got confused. God provided the confusion. And they were slain and they fled and they left everything. This incredible battle, this incredible campaign in which they had been victorious at every front ended in nothing and in defeat. And they went home ashamed without anything to show for it. Because God provided. And so it says, then he brought back all his possessions and he brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the people, and or the women and the people. And after his return from the defeat of Shadalamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Mechazeldech, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He, and the, he was the priest of the Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so he gets back, and there's grateful people everywhere. King of Sodom is blown away and just grateful for his people. King of Salem shows up and, and gives him a blessing. You know, it's interesting, Luther writes, and he, he's convinced that the Methuselah is actually Shem, right, who had been living according to the dates at this time giving him the, the utmost of blessing because he was the father of that whole line, right? But whether it was Shem or not, it doesn't really matter. It, somebody who was closer to God than even Abram, more blessed by God than Abram, blessed Abram that day. And Abram understood where it was coming from, and he understood that it was from God, and he received it in kind. It was the greatest gift he could have been given at that point. And so Abram gave him a tenth of everything. It's interesting, I talk to people that say, oh, I couldn't possibly tithe because I just don't know how it would all work. And I, I reference you to that first illustration I gave about that lady at my first church. And I'll tell you, God always makes it possible to be faithful. I'll share one more. I was on Vicarage again, and uh, one of the guys had been doing, working with Mayo Clinic, and he was in his last year of residency, and he'd been going back between Minnesota and Florida. And, and um, anyway, he came to our church, uh, because somebody referred him, I don't know why, but he came, and he wanted to talk with me, and, he, and as we were talking, he said, you know, I've always thought about being a pastor, but phew, it's too late now. 
he goes, I got like a hundred grand in debt and I just don't know how that would look, how that would work. And, and I thought, a hundred grand, man, that's a lot of money. You're going to be a pastor. But I didn't say that. I said, uh, I said the same thing. I said, if that's where God's drawing you, know that God always makes it possible to be faithful. So he came back that next year. He was a first-year student. I was a fourth-year student. We became friends and got to know each other really well. And we would kind of routinely talk about that first conversation. And he says, I'm trusting. God's going to provide. He went to his first church. And they paid off his whole loan. God always makes it possible to be faithful. The rest of us were just blown away by that. Who does that? Nobody does that. But God saw his heart. He saw his worry, and he provided a way. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me, again, it goes back to, do you really believe that what you believe is really real, right? Do you really believe God's promise when it comes to tithing? If you do, then you do. If you don't, you don't. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything, and the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take your goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who are with me. Let Aner and Neshel and Mamre take their share. And so, again, I go back to this. He was trusting God to still provide for him. He was already wealthy. He didn't need to enrich himself on other people's goods. He didn't want them to have credit over something that God should get credit for. You know, it's interesting. When we, a few years ago, we had a, a music minister that was here, and I had a guy come out of church one time, and he says, now I can really see the church growing big. And I said, well, then somebody's getting the wrong credit because it's only God that's going to do that. And as a result, I think he took our church to a little bit of a spin, right? Because that's not what happened at all. In fact, the opposite happened. God alone should get credit. God alone should get the glory. It's what got Moses in trouble in the scriptures. It's what gets everybody in trouble thinking that they deserve something that God didn't give them. So Moses or Abram looked at all this and he says, I'm good. I'm going to trust God with this. You guys keep everything. And they were blown away by that and probably a little bit insulted by that, right? Who are you to just give us this? But they're so grateful for their stuff back. They probably didn't care and they just, they just had a party probably. And thanksgiving to Abram for saving them and, and they went their way. It's interesting, as you look at the story of Gideon, I think there's a lot of parallels. After Gideon came back from that, he didn't say what Abram said. He said, all right, I'll become your king. And okay, I'll take your riches. And okay, I'll set my kids over you. And the people, did they appreciate that and, and love that he did that and respect that? No, after his death, they put all his kids to death. And they treated him in utter contempt for what he had done. So Abram, knowing the wisdom and knowing man and knowing the pettiness of man, chose what's right and chose God to bless him instead of this other means. I will take nothing but what you have, your young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshel, and Mamre take their share. We'll stop there tonight. But again, it goes along this theme of God's promises are true. 
I can't say that any stronger. They are true. And my prayer is that more and more in our life, we would trust them. Because God always makes it possible to be faithful. He always comes through with his promises. His ways are always the right way. My prayer is that we would stop compromising so much. Stop rationalizing away sin. Stop justifying our pride. And just trust God. I think that's what the whole story of Abram teaches over and over again. It's why they called him a man of great faith, of great trust and our amazing God. So let's pray. Guys, we walk through this story of Abram. It's it's, uh, convicting because we look at Abram and even though he totally blew it, we can relate to that. There's time and time again in our lives we seem to compromise stuff that we know isn't right. We kind of walk away or sidestep your truth figuring that we're can do it a better way or that we have to do it this way because of situations. We get ourselves in all sorts of trouble. It seems like we can relate to that part of the story way more than we can when Abraham just trusts you. You say it and he trusts it. He was willing to move. He was willing to take on a huge army. He was willing to give everything away to Lot. He's human and he made some mistakes, but But man, did he trust you in powerful ways. And he put his actions behind his trust again and again and again. Father, give us courage and help us learn from this. Because there is blessing when we follow you. And there is peace. And there is joy. And there is forgiveness. Father, let us embrace those things more and more in our life. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen.